1: Coming up on today's show, we'll see. What lessons can we learn from previous Canadian political leadership reviews? Single game sports betting has just become legal in this country. And boy, has it changed the landscape. Then succession is not just for sons anymore. More and more women are taking the reins of family businesses. We'll talk about that. The leadership review of Alberta's Premier, Jason Kenney, continues. Uh, Won't be over until the results are announced. May eighteenth though you still have more than a couple of weeks to go now this style, this slow motion style of leadership review uh, may be kind of unique. usually it happens at a convention, but leadership reviews themselves are nothing new. they happen all the time at every level of politics they're usually in fact pretty routine events, no big deal um, but Uh, from time to time, they do become very big events. And clearly, that's what we're going through right now. So we're going to get an update on, you know, what can we learn about leadership reviews from the past? We're going to chat with David Mitchell now, who's a Calgary-based author and historian, and get some insight into this. David, thank you for joining us. I uh, really appreciate your time today. Pleasure to be with you, Shay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just the fact, starting first of all, the way this leadership review came about, typically they happened at predetermined intervals and they're just a course of doing business within a political party. This one, you know, the timeline was forced, it was sped up, all these things. So just the way this one came about makes it different, right?
2: That's true. You know, leadership reviews, as you point out, Shay, uh, are fairly standard in Canadian political parties, federally, provincially as well. Uh, But they're more normal when parties are in opposition, when they've lost an election. Right. And they go they go through a period of soul searching. And a leadership review is is fairly normal under those circumstances. What's unusual about this review here in Alberta today is that it's a governing party, not an opposition party. And parties that are in government rarely go through a full fledged uh, leadership review process, like we're experiencing today, it's, it signals that there's something not quite right within the governing uni- UCP
1: in Alberta. No, I think you're absolutely right. It shows that you know they call themselves the United Conservatives. They're they're not united. Um, the other question, like you mentioned, when when you're talking about a party that's governing, you know, uh, you the threshold becomes an issue, and typically it has to be very high. Now we're hearing in this case, fifty plus one might be enough. In previous ones, that's not even close to what was required, right? No, that's right. And
2: while technically a a vote can be won, a leadership review vote, or most votes can be won with a simple majority, 50% plus one. um, Let's face it, a party, a governing party, getting into the last year of its mandate with a leader that only gained uh, 50% plus one would be devastating for that party for the party to be so uh, disunited and in disarray. Now, history tells us that there's a benchmark for approval, threshold for approval. And it, it really goes back to 19, way back to 1983 and Joe Clark, who lost a, an election um, as prime minister, uh, went to a convention. He received 66.9% of delegate support. But he said that that was insufficient. It was not enough to silence the critics within his party. So he called for a leadership uh, convention, and he lost to Brian Mulrooney. Ever since that time shade, that 66%, two-thirds support... It has become a bit of a reference mm-hmm. point, a benchmark. Anything less than that is
1: certainly insufficient, and even that level has uh, questions about it. Well, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, let's think back to Ralph Klein, who, I mean, to this day is a symbol of wildly popular, successful conservative Alberta premiers. He said he needed 75%, didn't get it. He was gone. So, I mean, 66 he needed more than that in his mind.
2: Well, that's right. Um, and, you know, that's not that long ago, and many of... Many of our listeners will remember that review. Uh, you know, it took place in 2006, and um, he was the premier. He had been premier for quite a while, uh, but there was a movement within the party to get rid of him. What What Ralph Klein said, Shay, is that he he intended to retire in a couple of yeah. years in 2008, but that wasn't sufficient to stem the revolt within the party. So there was a leadership review, and Ralph Klein said. Publicly, that he thought a 75% approval rating uh, in the review was necessary if he was going to continue at the helm of the party. Well, he announced his resignation very shortly after receiving a convention vote that gave him 55% support. He he realized the writing was on the wall. That was insufficient for him to carry on with only 55% support. Now there's no rule about this but yeah. it's a precedent it's a precedent that really matters. And that's why 50% plus 1 is insufficient.
1: Well and David the most important thing here is the fact this is supposed to get rid of the division and the dissension and reunite the party. The bigger number you think would be more important in this leadership review than perhaps any other.
2: Well I uh, I believe that in order for Premier Kenny to be able to continue as leader of the United Conservative Party, he will need to win an overwhelming level of support on May the 18th when the results of this review are announced. It will need to be unquestionably um, a party that has rallied behind him and his leadership. Anything short of that overwhelming support that's required and that history tells us is necessary will, will simply cripple the governing party heading
1: into the next provincial election. David, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate you joining us today. Nice talking to you, Shane. You bet. Thanks very much. That's David Mitchell, a Calgary-based author and historian talking about previous leadership reviews. And yeah, that number, like like David said, uh, 50 plus 1, I mean, I guess it comes down to the party and it comes down to the leader deciding this is what I need to feel as though I have uh, enough support within the party to carry on. We'll see. We'll see what happens. As we said, results are uh, to be released May 18th. And, and And I understand some of you get upset because we talk about Jason Kenney undergoing a leadership review and it hurts your feelings. Sorry, he's the premier of the province, and a lot of his party doesn't want him to be premier of the province. And we have to talk about it. I know it hurts your feelings, but it's just the way it is. Hey, Gavin, an interesting conversation now. If you um, if you watch sports on TV, and probably even you probably don't even have to just watch sports. It's probably showing up everywhere, but I I definitely notice it a lot when I'm watching sports on TV. Um, You've seen them constantly, ads for sports gambling, constantly. You can't get away from it. In fact, some of the actual broadcasts of the sporting event that you're watching are including gambling as part of their broadcast, as advertisers, as sponsors. They have segments now where the hosts aren't necessarily talking about um, where this play was made correctly, incorrectly, what this player did right, did wrong. No, they're talking about betting that's going on during the game. It, 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 it's crazy. It's a, you know, I was in Las Vegas recently. There is a monstrous poster of Wayne Gretzky just outside of, uh, I think it's the T-Mobile Center. Is that what they call it in Vegas? Whatever. Uh, outside of the hockey arena. There is a massive, massive banner of Wayne Gretzky up there uh, for a sports betting site. It's the same one that Connor McDavid endorses, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, you're talking two of the biggest names in the sport, um, past and present, all in on this sports gambling thing. It's huge. It's massive. And it's all a result of Bill uh, C., C-18, C-21? What was it? C-21, I think? I can't remember. But we talked about it not long ago when it came up with uh, Kevin Waugh. He was the guy who sponsored it. Um, It legalized single-game betting in our country, which sort of changed the landscape in a big way. So to get some insight on what the the slippery slope may be for some people, we're going to chat now with Professor Declan Hill. Uh, Professor Hill is an Associate Professor of Investigations at the University of New Haven and the lead of its Sports Integrity Centre. He's the author of The Fix, Soccer and Organized Crime, and The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing. Professor, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us. Say, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. You know, it's really kind of shocking to see how quickly the landscape changed once this bill passed. Like I say, I mean, it's everywhere. You're inundated with marketing for sports gambling now.
3: Yeah, you know what they call it in the U.K., and, and this is the basis. I, I wrote a big article in the Globe and Mail on the weekend on this. It's basically the, the U.K. and the European Union and America, of course, has gone through what Canada is just about yeah. to embark on. and And, and I want to make sure that all our listeners know I'm in favor of legalized sports gambling. I'm even in favor of legalized single-event sports gambling. But a couple of things have changed <laughs> in the last 10 years about gambling that make it much more dangerous, much more of a... Of a of a risky phenomenon, but before we get into that, let's just talk about what you know these academics call the gamblification of sport. Yeah. and that's really entrenched now in British sports. You don't get a sports team. You know, it's really difficult to find one of their sports teams without a bookmaker's logo on the thing. And 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 the problem with that is that people start to look at sports less as this. As this, you know, moral narrative that you know, you know, inspires us in our daily life, and it more becomes a vehicle for gambling, for betting. Exactly, so that, it, it
1: becomes more than the game.
3: Yeah, well, will well, people even stop looking at the players as players and great athletes and kind of Olympian gods to you know to, to admire or not? And they more become like horses in that the horse racing, they become a vehicle for your gambling. And it's a significant transformation, and and the research is robust over in the UK that the younger demographics, the guys under 35, are no longer looking at athletes as athletes. So now, like, hey, can the guy match the point spread? Can you do this? Can you do that? And it's very much in the same way gamblers look at horses. That's what we're getting into.
1: Yeah, it completely changes the way that we interact with, you know, what has just been a game for so long. Um, and, you know, let's break down some of the the dangerous aspects to this. And I, I'm with you. I'm in favor of this. And I recognize that for the vast majority of people, this will just, it'll change the way you do things when it comes to sports, but not necessarily in a drastically negative way. But in some cases, Professor, it can be extremely negative, deadly in some Absolutely. cases. Absolutely. Look, ninety percent of our listeners, you're no danger. Absolutely. For ten percent, this is
3: gambling is addictive, and it's particularly dangerous for that uh, male demographic between fourteen and thirty five. And when I say fourteen, I'm not exaggerating. The Gambling Commission, something that we don't have here in Canada, they have it in the UK. It does a lot of research, looks over, does an oversight of this uh, of this industry. They did research last year, and they discovered they had tens of thousands of pathological and problem gamblers who are under 18. So and, wow. and I want to make sure our listeners appreciate this. This isn't just a whole bunch of teenage guys, mostly guys, gambling. This is that they're already addicts. Yeah. And every single one of our listeners, I don't care where you are in Alberta, where you are in Canada listening to this, you know that's basically their, those, most of those teenagers, their lives are now over. If they're an addict at 15, they're never going to be able to escape from that. Their brains are getting wired in a completely unhealthy way. Um, And and part of the reason is this gamblification of sport, which you've astutely pointed out. You can't turn on a sports event without being bombarded with your sporting idols saying, hey, it's okay to sports gamble. This is great. That's fantastic. Now, you and I... And as I tell you, 90% of our listeners are like, yeah, yeah, we can handle that. We're adults. But you're a 15-year-old boy. You think, hey, it's okay that, you know, NHL star X or plus yeah. NHL star Y, whatever, are saying it's okay. Or some Hollywood actor is saying, hey, sports gambling's cool, cool, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly you've got all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems. Look, in the research for that um, Globe and Mail article, I, can, I, I contacted a group called Gambling with Lies. And they are set up by parent's whose kids have killed themselves because of gambling. And they've done really good work at collecting robust academic research, looking at the rate of suicide in the U.K., and they reckon somewhere between one and two people a day oh. kill themselves because of gambling. And, and I, 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 you know, if, if people are, like, shocked by that, look, go to their site, Gambling With lies, and you'll see on their website – these distraught parents have put photos of the kids who have killed themselves because of their gambling addiction. This is a serious problem for a small but significant yeah. percentage of the population, and we've really got to start talking about it.
1: I just got a text as we're talking, and I know this is another issue that you addressed from somebody, saying, hey, governments have long tried to take um, you know rackets away from organized crime. If you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. It doesn't work, though, right, especially when it comes to gambling. I mean, they tell us that's why they're doing it, but it doesn't work out yeah. that way.
3: Yeah look this the, the piece begins with a phenomenon that my sources in law enforcement and Canadian police have been uh, bugging me about for a number of years and that is the 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 wave of mob style attacks arsons and murders between uh, biker gangs and you know what we consider traditional uh, you know italian based organized crime the Roszudos used to have a sports gambling um, network. The Roszudos were the mafia group based out of Montreal, yeah. Montreal. But, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. The Roszudos were killed off by a group uh, called the Ndrangheta. They're basically from Calabria in southern Italy, um, but they're now the, 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 the you know the dominant group here in Canada. They killed off the Roszudos. They took over, and there's this there's this series of murders between these guys. And you're like, hang on a second, that doesn't make any sense. If we're going to legalize sports gambling. Why would anyone in the mob care? Like You know, they'd be like, hey, but instead they're killing each other to seize control of this lucrative, what they regard as lucrative sports gambling, because they think that the more legal sports gambling there's going to be, the larger the market is, and that the legal bettors are going to go into their market. So if you're a serious gambler, i.e. an addict, You don't wanna have you don't want to be dealing with somebody who's got social responsibility. You're just so desperate to place your bet that you're gonna place your bet with anybody who gives you credit. And that's gonna be the organized crime guys. Wow. They love giving people credit because then they can loan shark, then they can put them in debt, then they can take away their business, they can take away every penny that they've got. We've all seen Sopranos, we know how that works. Yep. Yep. (laughs) It's it's that thing. And that's why the organized
1: crime guys are going around shooting each other because they really wanna own that market now. The other thing you mentioned, and, and this boggles my mind, but you run through a number of, ex- of examples that I wasn't aware of, and that's match-fixing. And, I, I mean, I of course, we know about the, the, the White Sox back in the 19—what was it, 1920s, 1918, something like that?
3: 1919,
1: the World Series, yes. I mean, but, yeah, look, but it happens all the time, right? Yeah, Shay, you put your finger on my actual
3: expertise— I've written a number of books. I did an investigation when I was doing my PhD at the University of Oxford in, over in the UK, and where I infiltrated a gang of Asian fixers who travel around the world fixing major sporting tournaments. And there's now a, a, you know, a tsunami of fixing going around in soccer and tennis, cricket, all these, many of these uh, major international sports. And that's kind of lapping at the shores of North America. Um,
2: uh, you know the
3: greatest case that that we can relate to as Canadians happened in the Canadian Soccer League, which is a kind of um, semi-professional league in Quebec and Ontario, and that, that that had so many fixed games for so long between the years 2009 and 2019 when they effectively changed the league. It was an international joke. I mean, most bookmakers just gave up offering <laughs> uh, you know, bets on this Canadian soccer league. Every time I would go to an international anti-match-fixing conference, and I'm, I'm pretty stark about calling out corruption and complacency. You know, as a Canadian, I, I, I want it done right. Um, somebody would stand up and say, you know, who are you to talk? You're a Canadian. The Canadian soccer league's a living joke. And I'd be like, yeah, but yeah you, you got me on that one. So look, Canada has a reputation for match fixing internationally. Uh, one of my colleagues here at the University of New Haven, a, a brilliant guy called Richard Lewis, who has been an investigative journalist in esports. That's this multi-billions yeah, of dollars new market that the, that the kids are, are, are building. You know, they, it's just consuming their lives and they're doing a great job, except there's massive amounts of match fixing. And many of the match fixers in esports are choosing to live in Canada because they don't have a law. It specifically says match-fixing is wrong. So if you're in the U.S., you're going to have a problem because the FBI has actually formed a special police unit, and there's actually a law federally that says you can be indicted and convicted. Here in Canada, we neither have a special unit among the police, any of the police, whether it's provincial or the feds, RCMP, and we don't have a specific
1: law. Wow. Hey, tell that story before I let you go about the two teams that... Um, we're in a competition to make sure they lost. I mean, this is mind blowing, Prof.
3: Okay. Well, look. So, the Canadian Soccer League it happens five years ago in the Niagara Peninsula in in um, in southern Ontario, and there's a bunch of there's a bunch of guys, and there's they're an honest team. Like they're really trying their best. <laughs> they're they're good Canadian guys, and um, they're playing against a team that has brought in a bunch of really professional, higher level foreign players who are clearly fixing the game. Like clearly fixing the game. And by the midway through the second half, the Canadian guys go, you know, I won't say a bad word on on, on air, but like sod this, yeah. we're not gonna we're not participate in a fixed match. And they take the soccer ball, they turn around and they start running towards their own net and they're gonna <laughs> score on their own net to like blow the fix. I, they're gonna lose the game so that these guys were trying to fix, so they're trying to ruin their league. So the the Canadian guys are literally running down the field trying to score on their own net. The other team, with these high-priced foreigners who are trying to lose the game, go sprinting after them. They stop, they grab the ball, and they start running towards their net to (laughs) score on their goal. So the last 20 minutes of the game, Shay, is these two angry teams going, we're going to ruin the fix. No, you're not. And they're both trying to score in their own net. That's how bad the fixing got in the Canadian soccer league.
1: That is unbelievable to me. I, I mean, so we're ahead of ourselves in terms of legalizing this and not necessarily putting in the guardrails that we need to, uh, you know, like you say, even around simple laws like making price or match fixing illegal.
3: Yeah, and listen, there's a whole bunch of things we need to do. One is we need to be training our health professionals to recognize gambling addiction. Yes. If you're a drug addict, you know, you walk into a doctor's or a nurse's or, or, you know, practitioners, they're probably going to be able to recognize that there's some kind of addiction going on. Gambling addiction is equally severe, but there's no physical manifestations or there's very few physical manifestations. So we need to be training our health professionals to be able to recognize this, to be able to begin healthy conversations saying, hey, you know, you you've got to do this. We've got to recognize that this is a new form of gambling. It used to be 10 years ago, if you wanted to make a gamble or a bet in Edmonton or Calgary or wherever, you actually had to go to a racetrack or you had to go to a casino. You had to, you had to physically move. Now gamblers are effectively walking around with casinos in their back pocket. That's the, that's the mobile gambling power. Uh, you know, again, 90% of our listeners, yep. they don't have to worry about it, but, but, but 90% of our listeners know somebody who's an alcoholic. Definitely. Now imagine that alcoholic who's struggling to stay sober, struggling to be a good person and, and, and live without addiction. Imagine that they would have to walk around with a bar in their back pocket. That's
1: no, you're absolutely right. And, and the That's destruction the that gambling does, Professor, is fast and it is uh, absolutely devastating. I mean, it takes lives.
3: Yeah, and the thing is, 90% of people, it's not going to hurt. Yeah, for mm-hmm. 92%, it's not going to hurt. But somewhere between 1% and 8% of our population are extremely susceptible to this. And now this new frictionless gambling where you can pull out of your pocket, you can click some buttons on it, and suddenly you're, 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 you're involved in something that you don't know is really, really dangerous. Really, really
1: dangerous. Awesome segment, Professor. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you so much.
3: Shay, listen, it's an honor to talk about this issue. Have me on any time because I really want to get this this national debate going. This is a hugely important issue and it's going to break up families across
1: Canada, so we need to start talking about this. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much and we will uh, we'll definitely chat again. That is Professor Declan Hill, an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven and the lead of its Sports Integrity Center. Okay. We're going to have a conversation here that, and, and I admit this is probably just a gender bias that I have, and maybe I'm wrong and maybe always have been wrong, or maybe I have that bias because it's the reality, unfortunately. And it, well, the fortunate part is it's changing, but when, when I think typically of businesses being handed down, family businesses being handed down, it's typically the son I think that takes over. You know, it's always seemed that way to I me. Mean, you know, I haven't really thought about it much, so it's probably just, you know, just a bias that I've been carrying around without really thinking about it for all that long, but maybe not because it looks like things might be changing. Anyway, we're going to talk to somebody who does know, somebody who's looked into this. We're going to talk with Christina Constantinidis, who is a professor of entrepreneurship at the University of Quebec in Montreal. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us
0: for your interest in that topic and glad to talk with you about that topic. First of
1: all, <laughs> am I am I am I just biased? Like we, so many of us are to so many things is it just us walking through life thinking oh, I will always go down to the sun or is that really the way that it's worked out?
0: So, I think that you are not the only one to be biased. That's yeah. the good news <laughs> or the bad news. So, we have we have these implicit biases in our society. Um, towards men and women, okay, we think that men and women are not meant for the same things or they don't have the same competences or um, the same skills, okay, and we have also biases about the leadership function because we see leadership in a certain way, narrowed way, with some characteristics that we associate um, often with male, so-called male or masculine characteristics. So, these are implicit biases going on in our society, which also are based on some part of truth, of course. Mm-hmm. And the truth reinforces the biases, and the biases reinforces the truth.
1: So, so like you say, that's just something that we walk around with, that, that, that bias. Does it also translate into the way things work? I mean, typically when you think of businesses being handed down, family businesses through the family, is it even within those family businesses where, oh, the son will be the one to take over? Is, that, is the bias that
0: strong? Mm-hmm. So here I would like to to make an answer in two points. So f- the first point is, uh, yes, culturally, historically, the father-son successions have been most often the ones that we see and that we live. So statistically, the, the families tend to be, you know, passed on to the sons. Right. Um, Second point is that is changing. Recently, I've seen more and more women, daughters taking over the family business or siblings taking over the family business together. So that is more and more the case. And in parallel, the norms and the values, the gender norms, the gender values are also changing. So that's the, the good news for me from a feminist and egalitarian point of view, of course.
1: I think it's good for all of us, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, when we take a look at what we're seeing uh, translating into Canadian, uh, the business mm-hmm. world in our country, what are we seeing? Is that is that starting to um, be reflected more in the way Canadian businesses are being transferred?
0: Yes, yes, definitely. So, first of all, I want to to state that family businesses. So i'm talking here about family businesses are the backbone of the canadian economy okay yeah. and the worldwide economy as well so um more or less 90 percent of businesses are privately owned by families in canada so that's a huge number that we talk about and i i want to stress that because these family businesses have to be transmitted there will be a peak of transmissions to the next generation in the next 15 to 20 years. So that's very short term. Okay. And these family businesses, most of them are not ready to transmit it. They have no succession plans. They have Mm -hmm. not, you know, talked about a lot of things that have, that are included in the succession and especially about gender issues, which I, I work on it, you know, on that topic for 10 years now. And, there are many issues to discuss in families. So now in Canada, what is happening is that more and more businesses are transferred to the daughters, but without any preparation about the challenges and barriers that these daughters will encounter in those businesses towards employees, towards, you know, external stakeholders, towards other family members, their brothers, their uncles, that can be their cousins, who are not ready to, you know, include these gender issues in their way of seeing things and preparing things. So that's the greatest issue from my point of view nowadays in Canada.
1: Yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Uh, interesting. What about um, what it means to the business? I mean, it, uh, it, for it's lack it, of a better term, generally speaking, which I know is wrong, uh, do women do things differently? I mean, when, if they take over the business, do, do sons typically do things in a, in a certain way that's different if a daughter takes over?
0: Okay, the answer is yes, okay. The answer is yes, but that's not a natural difference i i I, I would say that's a social social of course, yeah, yeah. think so daughters when they are in the divide, when they are identified as the successors, they have to prove themselves to prove their legitimacy. To, to, to challenge some existing gender norms that are very strong patriarchal norms and the primogeniture rule, you know that runs implicitly in the in the minds and the biases, and the daughter has to challenge these implicit or explicit norms, and to do so, she develops innovative strategies, innovative ways of innovative ways of doing things. So. um so sometimes, you know, it implies to get a seat at the table, you know, and to push yeah. her arguments, you know, to the stakeholders, to the father, to the other family members. And that gives her, you know, more confidence to do so with other topics. So what does that mean? Nowadays, family businesses have to gi- digitalize. They have to yep. innovate to, you know, to, to become more inclusive, to be competitive in our nowadays world, so daughters can really encounter some barriers, but that can, they can also be a lever for that innovation to 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 happen. You know, yeah. I don't I don't say that sons cannot do that, of course, but you have this mirroring phenomenon that that we can see where the son mirrors the father, yes. and you know takes. Uh, The same leadership style, the same, a similar, at least a similar way of doing things. And therefore, daughters can really be this level for innovation and renewal, strategic renewal in the firm, especially if they work together with their brother. So siblings are very powerful in terms of succession.
1: Makes perfect sense. It really and truly does. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much, Christina, for your time. I appreciate you joining us today.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. That was quick. Thank you very much for your interest. And, and I would happy to, to talk another day.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's a very interesting discussion. And, um, I think it's, yeah, I think she makes the best point. The sibling team would be a great way. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, you could some, some kids, boys or girls, men or women are going to be interested in following the family business or not. And, um, as a parent, like, like Haas says, you know, giving my stuff to my son would be a massive fail on my part. Wouldn't be a massive fail on my part. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate. that Both my kids are pretty, pretty with the kids, but together they would be much better because they're so different. But I don't, I don't know if that's a, a a sex thing or if that's just because they're different people. But, um, I don't know. It's an interesting discussion. I I think we're moving away from that. It's, it's kind of part of me, even as I, you know, we're introducing this segment, I'm thinking, you know what? Yeah. When I think about it, I just sort of assume whatever businesses are typically handed down to the son, and you know, in, in her piece, she says um, in most instances the way society has worked in North America is daughters take over if there is no son or the son doesn't want to do it. That's sort of the way we have done it traditionally. Which, if you think about it for just a second. It's absolutely absurd. It really and truly is. It, just the way that that bias sort of dictates the way that we go about having that kind of discussion. It really is baffling if you think about it for just a minute. I mean, uh, but hopefully it's changing, you know, and uh, we get rid of these these artificial <laughs> barriers that we've created that really make absolutely no sense. Um, so we'll see where it goes from here, and we can all take a role in trying to push that. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.